All right, so that may seem like an interesting introduction, but I, I just want to say I, I like that show. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. It's a crazy show. I like the survival shows, but it's really inspiring at the same time. I mean, there's just something about a man who is willing to go and do something alone. Each candidate on this show, if you ever happen to watch it, is already highly trained in survival and willing to accept the challenge. So that's a man's man right there. He's willing to take on all that the world, all that nature has to throw at him, and he's willing to do it all by himself. Now I want you to consider that in the context of missions. So similar to that survival challenge, I mean, face it, it's pretty daunting, isn't it? I mean, thank God that he would never ask any of you to go out all alone and do something for him. Or would he? I mean, we know that in Matthew, or excuse me, in Mark 6, verse 7, Jesus sent out his disciples two by two. We know that. We know that Mark 6, it is a missions context. You go down to about verse 12, and it says that they preached that men should repent. That's the gospel. We know that missionary activity in the book of Acts was in groups. It was in teams. I mean, the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, they were together. In the second missionary journey, Paul had Silas and Timothy with him. So most churches that care enough to bother to send people out are certainly going to do so in teams and praise the Lord for that, really. And so you may be one of those who's interested in being used by the Lord. And so as a result of that short biblical survey, you, you might say, wow, cool, praise the Lord, because that alone thing, I mean, that's not for me. But I say, really? Says who? I mean, if you will, just think about it. Did, did you just consider that unilaterally? I mean, you might say, after all, I mean, I'm a good Bible student, I happen to know that the first mention of the word alone is in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 where it says that it's not good that man should be alone. And you could argue that Genesis 2 is in the context of the mission. God gave woman to man to fulfill his mission. But you could also understand that in that same passage of Scripture that Oh yeah, God says the two become one flesh. So what I'd like for you to consider with our time that we have together this evening is in your handout if you're following along, and that's this simple question. Is it possible that God would call some of you to be sent out to serve him alone? Are there such examples in Scripture? Maybe you'll be surprised. Tonight's not about some long philosophical discussion about all the pros and cons of working in ministry teams or not. What I want to do is I want you to see tonight that God has called critically important characters in the Scriptures 
to start something new and to do it all alone. You ready to do that with me? You ready for some Bible study? We're going to start with the first point in your outline. We're going to look at Abraham. And as you know, Abraham was before the law. Abraham was before the law. So the story of Abraham, right, it's a key study in the study of God's plan for missions. When we study missiology, we always go back to the story of Abraham, right? And while we can make the case for the fact that the Great Commission predates Abraham, right? It starts with Adam and it continues with Noah with that whole be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, and that's true. I want you to consider the fact that it was, well, at that time, Abram, that was specifically called of God to leave his homeland and to go to a new place. And to go to a new place with a specific stated purpose of being a blessing to affect other nations. We see this in Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 8 where it says in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. So Abraham is certainly called to go out and to be a, a blessing unto all the nations. That is missions. Well, how did all that get started with Abram? How did it all begin? Well, you guys are good Bible students. You know that it all starts back in Genesis chapter 12. And, and before we jump into Genesis chapter 12, I want to remind you, God reminds Israel later on in their history, in the book of Isaiah, he reminds Israel to look back and to consider their beginnings. I want you to notice in Isaiah chapter 51, it starts out this way. God says unto Israel, hearken unto me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord. Let's just stop here for a quick second and let me just ask you a question. From a very practical, inspirational perspective, is that you? Do you follow after righteousness? Do you seek the Lord? Okay, well then we better pay attention. He goes on and he says, look unto the rock whence you are hewn and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham, your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. So certainly that reference in Isaiah points to the time that he called him from Genesis chapter 12. And, and so that's what I want us to review. In Genesis chapter 12, many of you are very familiar with this already. It starts out in verse number one. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. Let me just stop here for a quick second and remind all of us good King James Bible believers that the early modern English usage of the personal pronoun thee is singular. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Eleven times a singular personal pronoun is used. 
Sure does look like God's calling Abram out alone, doesn't it? And it includes this promise of blessing and increase. Well, that's missions. That's what missions is all about. You see, Abram, when God calls him, doesn't even know where he's supposed to go. God basically says, just get moving, and when you get there, I'll tell you. So no wonder he becomes a model for faith for all of us. He was to step out on faith. The question I want us to consider together tonight is this. Was Abram obedient? Was he obedient to God's call? Did he exactly do what God asked him to do? Well, the very next verse, verse number four, goes on and it says, So Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 70 and five years old when he departed out of Haran. Was bringing Lot with him a good thing? Or not? Did he just take Lot on his own because he thought, well, I mean, I don't want to go alone. I want to bring somebody with me. Didn't we just read in verse number one where it said, from thy kindred? From thy father's house? And Lot is Abram's kindred. Lot is of his father's house. Well, how'd that work out for you, Abram? Well, we'll just look at the next chapters. We're just going to keep reading. Genesis 13, you read it on your own, but basically what we have is that Abraham and Sarah and Lot end up going down into Egypt. Well, that was, the, that was a bad move. That was the wrong direction, right? And when they came back, they came back very wealthy. And when they came back very wealthy, they realized, man, we've got too much cattle, we have too much wealth, and the land here in front of us isn't big enough to hold us all. Abraham, very gracious, he tells Lot, you pick which direction you want to go and we'll go the other way. And Lot chose Sodom. And Abram chose the plain. Well, we go into the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 14. And in Genesis chapter 14, we read about this thing called the Battle of the Kings. Now, Abram isn't involved in the Battle of the Kings. He's living peacefully in the plain. But he gets drawn into the battle. He gets drawn into the battle because of Lot. And if you were to glance at verses 10 through 12 in Genesis 14, well, what you'll find is, is that in the course of the battle, Sodom gets sacked and the people of Sodom get taken hostage. And Lot is taken as well. So Abram, whatever it was he was doing, he had to stop what he was doing so he could go and save Lot's neck. And he does that, and he's blessed by Melchizedek, but the problems of Sodom, even after that deliverance, well, they continue, and Lot doesn't leave Sodom. He stays there, and once again, later on in the narrative, Abraham now has to pray and negotiate with God to not destroy all of Sodom if only, Lord, we could find 50 righteous. And the Lord says, okay, for 50 righteous. So, um, while we're talking, how about just 45? How about 40? And the Lord is like, okay, 40. And he works him all the way down to 10. 
if we could find 10 righteous in Sodom, will you spare the whole city? Yes, find 10 righteous. I'll spare the whole city. But there weren't 10 righteous. Lot was a righteous man. 2 Peter 2 tells us that, right? He was a just and a righteous man. But his soul was vexed because of the sins of his surroundings. And Lot had no influence on the society where he lived. And Abraham learned that bringing others along with him just turned out to be a distraction. Now, God still accomplishes his will through Abraham because, well, those were unconditional promises and God was going to do what God was going to do. But seriously, brothers and sisters, don't you want to cooperate with God? Don't you want to be obedient and do the things that he asks you to do so that you'll have the least amount of trials and tribulations? Why go through the unnecessary heartache? I want you to notice something. This is a statement in your notes as well. Blessing and increase, those things that were promised back in Genesis 12, they did come, but they came through Abraham's fruit. They came through Isaac, who didn't appear until after he was obedient to leave and to follow God in the mission. So the blessing and the increase wasn't multiplied because he brought Lot with him. In fact, just the opposite. The blessing and the increase came as a result of the fruit that was born while he was in the midst of carrying out his mission. So that's Abraham. Let's go on to our next example. It's Moses. You also know, you fill in your little blank, you could have guessed ahead of time. I like to guess ahead of time at the blanks. <laughs> Moses is under the law. Everybody knows that. The law came with Moses, right? So let's look at that. Again, something new. Abraham was called out. It was going to be something new. The time of the patriarchs. Moses is coming out. It's a new time. It's a new dispensation. New things are happening. How do we expect God to start something new? Well, let's see. Exodus chapter 3, God calls Moses. Start in verse number 1. This is the burning bush. Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the backside of the desert. He came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I'll now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here am I. Moses was alone. He was in the middle of a desert. He was tending to the flock. Who do you suppose God would put his hand on to call to do something new? Somebody busy tending to the flock, minding their own business. That's the kind of person God calls. Well, how did Moses respond to that? Well, I think you know. We go down to verse number 11 of the same chapter, and it says this, And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? He says, I, I can't do this alone. No way. This task is far too daunting. But God reassures him because God is good. 
And the very next verse, God understands the anxiety. And the very next verse, verse 12, and he said, certainly, I'll be with thee. And this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee when thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, and you shall serve God upon this mountain. So let me ask you a question. When God said, I'll be with you, shouldn't that have been enough? I, I put it in your notes this way. Is God sufficient company for you? I want you to think about that. We get all fired up when we're all in a big room and we're praising the Lord and worshiping Him and dreaming about great things and, and, and the blessings of a church that's unified is a wonderful blessing. But when that day comes and when the Lord asks you to step out and life gets real, but the Lord says, I'll be with you. And you're like, of course it's enough. You're right, the right answer is, of course it's enough. Is it really this is applicable to us. Hebrews 13, 5, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. Romans 8, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Rhetorical question, nothing, no one, right? Well, the context of Moses is certainly the context of missions. It's God's mission. It's bringing God's people out from bondage. You know the typology. Israel, a type of any believer, they start out lost in bondage to Egypt, the world saved by the blood of the Lamb and brought forth ultimately to the promised land. The pilgrim's progress of anybody who responds to the Lord. Well, later as the story continues, right, God tells Moses to go and to confront Pharaoh and to go and to do it alone. How did Moses respond? Well, in Exodus 4, verse number 10, Moses said unto the Lord, O oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, Neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I'm slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Man, I can't do this. Are you kidding me? And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Who maketh the dumb or deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go. And he, he reiterates, he doubles down. I'll be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. Moses, I'm with you. I got your back. Just go and open your mouth. I'll give you the words to say. Don't worry. But Moses, verse 13, Oh my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of anybody else. Just not me. And God says, Man, I'm going to be with you. It's not just you. Remember? And you can sense the Lord is losing his patience. He's like, now therefore go. Just stop making excuses. And Moses just begging him, please, please find somebody else. Verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well. So the Lord, you got to be careful sometimes what you pray for, answers Moses' prayer and gives him what he asks for. But the Lord was angry. He was angry that he bothered to do that. 
He gives in to Moses' resistance. He allows Aaron to join him, to help him out. But that was not God's plan. As if maybe the Lord knew something about Aaron that just wasn't right. In other words, your immediate help may cause long-term harm. The help you're looking for right now because you're a little scared, you're a little nervous, you're a little tentative, you're overwhelmed by the call, you're overwhelmed by the possibility, and you're looking for some immediate relief, don't you realize that if that's not the Lord's plan, you could be causing yourself a lot of heartache unnecessarily. So let's fast forward the story in the wilderness. Again, a lot of you have already tracking. They're now across the Red Sea and they come to the wilderness. They're in Mount Sinai. And what does the Lord do? What does the Lord instruct? In Exodus chapter 24, in verse number two, notice. Here's what God says. And Moses alone shall come near unto the Lord. But they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. And so Moses, okay, Moses goes up alone and he spends time with the Lord and the Lord gives him the instruction of the law. And while he's getting this specific mission-centered instruction, what are the rest of the people doing down in the valley? They're having an idolatrous worship service, building a golden calf led by a particular worship leader whose name was Aaron. That's Exodus chapter 32. And when that occurred in Exodus chapter 32, I mean, it wouldn't surprise any of us when we read that God got mad. He didn't appreciate it, right? So we pick it up in Exodus chapter 32 now, and in verse number 10, notice the Lord speaking to Moses. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them, and I'll make of thee a great nation. The Lord says, step aside, Moses. This isn't your fault. You step aside. There are a bunch of idol-worshiping pagans. I'm going to kill them all, and we're going to start over from scratch with just you alone, like the original plan was. So you would think Moses would be like, wow, okay, that's harsh, but okay. No. No, the response immediately follows in verse 11. Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath. And repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed. And they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Can't you see what's happening here? Moses is begging God not to judge, not to kill him. He begs God to keep him around. And you say, wow, that's bold. You say, what a great shepherd. 
how he cares for his people. And maybe there's something to be said about that. But once again, be careful what you ask God for. Be careful. Because we're going to fast forward this story one more time. And after they'd spent some time in the wilderness, do you, you know how Moses wasn't allowed to enter the promised land, and you know why he wasn't allowed specifically to enter the promised land with the rest of the children of Israel. It was for that one specific event. Because the second time they came to the rock and they needed something to drink, the Lord said, not this time, don't smite the rock, just speak to the rock. But Moses smites the rock again with the rod and the water does come out and the people do get to drink, but the Lord says, Moses, you blew it. Because you smote the rock, you're going to die here in the wilderness with everybody else. But why, have you ever thought about it? Did he smite the rock the second time? Why did Moses not just do what God said? I mean, it worked the first time when he did what he said. Why didn't he do it again? Well, I think it's clear. It's because he was fed up with the constant whining and complaining of this group of Israelites. Their carnality so rubbed off on him, he became carnal, and he blew it. That's what it says in Numbers chapter 20, verses 10 and 11. Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels. He was mad at them. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? Again, you stinking whiners. I, I added that part. <laughs> Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod, he smoked the rock, rock twice. And God said, that's it. That's too much. You fast forward to the time when they're on the east side of Jordan, they're about to come over, and Moses is begging God, hey, Lord, you know, how about, how about a do-over? How about I get it? Just let, just let me cross over. Let me cross over. And the Lord says, no, not going to let you cross over. And, and in his narrative, as Moses is telling the children of Israel why he, he's reminding them of all the things, and he says, why can't I cross over? In Deuteronomy 137, he says, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes. Now, he might have been kind of whining himself at that time, but there's some truth to that. Moses ended up making a bad decision because he so insisted on keeping people around him that God didn't intend to have him keep around him. You've got to be careful. You've got to see the pattern. And here's the pattern. If, it's not for everybody. Listen, we'll clarify before we're done. If God happens to call you to do something alone, don't compromise by, by insisting on bringing others with you because that would be a compromise. Don't do everything in your power to keep them around either because those carnal Israelites ultimately pushed Moses over the edge and jeopardized his rewards his entrance into the promised land. Uh, let's move on to the next one, Jesus Christ. That's the transition from the law. Again, something new, a new testament, a new covenant, a new dispensation is looming. Obviously, Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of everything. Certainly the ultimate example of a missionary, right? So let's quickly run through, because you guys know the story. Let's look at how he operated. First off, he was sent alone. 
Well, okay, but it's true. He's the God-man. He's the one that left heaven to come to earth. He came as a baby. He came to save the people from their sins. Only Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, is the visible form of the invisible God. So I get it. Who else could they send? I get it. Okay, so what else? Oh, but he was sent alone. It's a fact. Okay, well, number two, he also saved us alone. Have you ever really noticed Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 3? Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I mean, after all, hanging on the cross, Father, Father, why dost thou forsake me? The Father turned his back on him. Jesus did what he did to save us, all alone. Jesus served alone, number three, and, and all through the Gospels, you see this over and over and over again. He prayed alone, he taught alone, he often traveled alone, but not unlike Moses, he was never really alone because he testifies in John 16 and verse 32, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone, because the Father's with me. You see, Jesus understood, obviously, what Moses never really was able to understand. He was sent alone. He saved us alone. He served alone. He sentences alone. In other words, that's his judgment. That's the second advent. That's Armageddon. Even though we get to return as the church of Jesus Christ together with him, right, during that second coming, he alone executes the judgment on the unbelieving world. That's not our job. So when Revelation 14 talks about the wine press of the wrath of God and that the blood came out of the wine press even under the horse's bridles, man, he's referring to what was referenced back in Isaiah chapter 63. In Isaiah 63, prophesying of this event in verse 3, it says, I've trodden the wine press alone. He's doing it. We're not doing it. You see, Jesus operated alone for the duration of his earthly, do I need to say the word missions? Ministry. You want to be like Jesus? Now listen, to be fair, obviously, Jesus had a team of co-workers. Where did he get them? Oh, those were people that he led. Those were people that he trained after he arrived in the location where he had to go. There, there's plenty of room for teams to work together, but sometimes God will call somebody to do something all alone to build the team there when they get there. That's what the Lord did, right? So allow me to take the last bit of time that we have together with the fourth point of our outline and just talk about others. And that's after the law. This is the church age. Now, 
It is true. I, I introed this message referencing Jesus sending out two by two and the Acts era and Paul had missionary teams and, and that is absolutely true and that is the church age and that is the time in which we live and, and I don't want you tonight to think that I'm saying that it's not valid to have teams of people because God can and does do that. He certainly does. But what I'm trying to communicate to you tonight, because I think there just might be some ears to hear this, is that it's not one size fits all. And God certainly does still call people out to start new things alone, alone. So I can't help but give you some insight into the experience that I have, and, and many of you have heard much of my story before, but very briefly, allow me just to let you know in case you don't know, the Lord called me to go do something new in a new place alone, and, and it was daunting. There's no question about it. In my story, I was 30 years old and still single, and I had finished my church's, local church, Bible Institute training, and, and I desired the office of a bishop. I desired to serve him as a missionary specifically, and, and in my mind, I had it all worked out. I, I, I would say that I had a deal with the Lord, and it was very it was very holy, it was very righteous. My, my deal with the Lord was is that he would provide me a partner, a wife, and then we would willingly surrender and go wherever he would send us. And there came a point in time when through the ministry of Decatur Baptist Church and we took this trip to Albania in 1992 that I was there and the circumstances were such that the Lord was making it very clear that he was calling me to stay in Albania, but I was still single and didn't have a prospect. And so I, I prayed sincerely, Lord, I thought we had a deal. <laughs> and in so many words, in my heart and my mind, the Lord said, you had a deal. I said, well, I don't have any idea how to go and do this all alone. And he said in my heart, in my mind, very clearly, I can't forget it 30 years later. Um, similar to Moses, I'll be with you. The way that it came down to me at that moment was specifically unforgettable. It was, Jeff, have I ever let you down yet? No. <laughs> hate arguing with the Lord. You've never let me down yet. Why would you start now? Amen. All right. Amen. I'm scared. Okay. I don't know what to do. Okay. I'll be with you. Let me tell you something. Going out alone, alone like I did, it ain't for everybody. It doesn't make you any better. It doesn't make you any worse. It, it's, just, it's just what God did. It's just the truth of my story. That's all. And I want you to be aware of it because I want you to realize 
that it does actually still happen. There can be times when the Lord will put his hand on you, sir, and ask you to consider giving it all up. And you don't necessarily have the luxury of the teams that others have had. And that might have been God's will for them, but it's not for you. And he's asking you to consider something new. By God's grace, he figured out how to forgive and and work through all of the mistakes and foolishness that I did through the course of 14 years in our ministry in Albania. And God did some amazing things and built a couple of strong churches before I left and a couple of more churches since I've been gone and a couple of missionaries sent out internationally since that and the vision and the growth continues and, and God's being glorified and things are happening. But it was something new in a new place in a new time where there was nothing going on and somebody had to start it and somebody had to go get it started by themselves. It was a hard field and a hard time. And God was working. Now let me tell you about that because on the other hand, yeah, it's easy to talk about how things can be hard. But there are some specific advantages as well. If you're willing and able to do that, if God puts his hand on you to do that, because I'll tell you what I didn't have to worry about. I didn't have to worry about the health and stability of the other team members that would have been with me. I was able to focus 100% on the mission at hand without any other distractions, whether those distractions be good or bad or otherwise. And without question, I was able to assimilate much more quickly into the language and the culture, and therefore becoming more effective without always having to double back with a team of English-speaking Americans that would have been with me. And you know what? Some people are just wired that way. Not everybody. Kale Horvath from our church, he's wired that way. We talked about others going with him. He said, I don't want them. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Good for you. Go get them. Do you remember what God said to Ezekiel? Ezekiel 22, verse 30. I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. God's looking for a man that'll stand in the gap, that'll make up the hedge, that'll intercede, that'll represent him so that he doesn't have to judge this land, this people. The sad conclusion in Ezekiel was I I found none. I found none. If by chance you've ever read the church history works written by Dr. Peter Ruckman, he put together this progression of how it's been observable history throughout the time of the church that, I put this statement in your notes, God's work always starts with a man. It always starts with a man. A man of God, a singular leader, a man who will stand in the gap, a man who will make up the hedge. God always begins something new with a man. And then, it develops into a movement. And that's what you want, a movement of God's people. That's what we experience here together. It's a movement of God's people. 
Over time, it can become a machine, and that's when it gets dangerous because a machine has a lot of mechanical activity, but it actually doesn't have life. And finally, it degradates to a monument, which is nothing more than a memorial to previous life. And when death sets in, we need another man. We need another man. Do you want to go out of here and start something new for the Lord in a new location? You don't start with a movement. You start with a man. You start with a man. And I want to challenge you tonight. Be that man. Who's willing to say, I don't know what it means, I don't know where it'll take me, I don't know what it'll cost me, I don't know what it looks like. By God's grace, I will be that man. But if you're going to do that, yeah, there's prerequisites. Yeah, you need to prepare yourself like these men and women we saw tonight. Yeah, you need to be approved by your church. Of course there's steps you have to take. But it's never going to happen if you're not at least willing before the Lord to say, I, I'll be that man. I'll be that man. You know, at the end of Moses' life, of course he did some dumb things. But there's still a great testimony. Hebrews 11, that chapter that recounts the, the great ending thoughts of various saints' lives. Verse 24, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproaches, uh, reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. You have to love and fear the Lord and, and esteem the riches that he has for you eternally, greater than the riches you potentially can earn in whatever your profession is down here. And to be willing, right, to take on those reproaches rather than enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. Why? So how's that ever going to happen for any of you? Well, I think you got it figured out. You're going to have to work through it, not in groups. You're going to have to work through it alone with the Lord. Just like Jacob in Genesis 32. Verse 24, Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. That that man is the son of man. That man is the Lord. And Jacob had to spend time alone with the Lord, wrestling with him. And when Jacob came up from that wrestling match, that something happened to him. He, he just never walked the same way again, did he? Some of you need to get alone with the Lord. Some of you need just to get on your face and have a wrestling match in prayer with the Lord and see if he doesn't touch you so that your walk is never the same again. And you surrender your heart and you give your life willing to do whatever he might call you to do and leave the details to him. And he will be glorified and you will never be the same. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father,
We praise you for the truth of your word and the encouragement that it is for us. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to hearts of these dear brothers and sisters here tonight. I pray, God, that if there would be one that would just say, Lord, that was for me. Maybe these minutes aren't enough. Maybe they're going to need the next week or two of their lives to wrestle with you through this. But, Lord, it's going to start right now. And maybe some of them are going to need to come forward and get on their faces and pray. And maybe some of them are going to grab a pastor and pray. And maybe some of them are just going to get alone, alone, alone and wrestle with you. But God, I pray that you would work. I pray that you would speak. I pray that you would change lives. And I pray that you would do it all for your glory. We pray in your name. Amen.